welcome to episode 15, uh, the second part of our look into f- the topic of food sovereignty. And, uh, or 14 fact, part B, whatever way you want to consider 14 it. 14 B, I'm going to call it 15 because it sounds more impressive. <laughs> um, so this time we're going to be talking to Lucy O'Hagan, who is a... Uh, a um, Lucy O'Hagan is a forest school practitioner and we, we'll, we'll explain a bit what that means in, or you'll hear Lucy explain what that is later on but uh, she's an ethnobotanist so she studies the uh, the plants that grow indigenously I guess here in Ireland um, and, and getting uh, more back into the wild yourself and getting yeah. more back into touch with nature I'm trying to say that in a way it doesn't sound silly but yeah. but in, in, a, in a genuinely very positive way like taking yourself out of like the urban areas and re realising kind of we talked to the the last bit about becoming part of nature again and from the philosophical point but from a very practical point of view she does that yeah yeah so especially she, with the kids and the like you know which yeah, is great yeah. she's a company called Wild Awake who facilitates the forest schools so she takes kids out but also takes adults out um, and educates them like out in nature she does stuff in the Phoenix Park the Phoenix Forest School yeah. so take you out and you, you kind of learn what the does she only do that in Dublin she's also no no all over the country but it, yeah. in, um, but it, it does a regular thing monthly in, in the Phoenix Park where you can go out and um, sometimes you could be, you'll be foraging for stuff, learning about the plants, um, or just yeah, just learning about the the animals and the plants that exist there, and learning about how we've been shaped by our, our environment, basically, and how we can get back in touch with that. And it's in a sense, it's kind of relearning something that maybe our grandparents and great grandparents would have known, yeah. and would have been common for them to know about so, different species of everything and anything, and you know, yeah, the wild, yeah. essentially. Um. So yeah, so kind of going against that process, that hundred year, few hundred year process of industrialization, where we've kind of utterly it feels like we've utterly separated ourselves from the world, but we haven't really. We've given ourselves the illusion that we have. Well, yeah, so, exactly. We think so we getting have. getting back in touch with that, with that ultimate reality, is is what we kind of need to to strengthen ourselves and to save ultimately save our society if that's even possible. Um, without being alarmist, but we are heading we're heading towards the edge of a cliff, so we need to like. We need to address these problems. So kind of where that links into food sovereignty, I suppose, is the whole thing, the big, it comes back to the big picture needing to be in touch with your habitat to know what's going on so you can see when you're harming it. Yeah. That's that's kind of the big problem with environmental issues. It's, it's It never seems as pressing as stuff like housing because you don't yeah. really see the danger because where, like, where you don't see where our food comes from, we don't see where our energy comes from. So yeah. it's, and it, it's really hard when you don't see something directly to appreciate it you know what I mean absolutely yeah like big, yeah. In, we both would have gone to places places like Rossport um, different places around Europe where the effects of these things are being felt directly so you actually see it happening the motorway you see the damage the car as well of course um, yeah <laughs> in our history or like um, I don't know for, forests being felled in Germany to facilitate gold mining you see these massive gargantuan open pit mines where once there was forest and now there's just this crater this yeah. wasteland where yeah. nothing grows nothing lives and so like when you see things it's, it's most people don't see that you don't see it in your daily life no. and it's very easy to forget even after you have seen it you know what I mean absolutely you go f- back into the cities or wherever it is and you you're just, back into the routine and you just you don't see it so you don't think about it but the, we need to kind of you could argue that cities are in a way that also which like they're they're a lack there's a they're, they're kind of like the, the there's there's human beings walking around and as I was saying in the last episode you might have you might have like lots of dirty pigeons and rats and all the rest of it but there's a there's a lack of ecology they're, they're kind of crate not they're not literally craters obviously but they're 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 hollowed out of, of nature yeah do you know and that's that's something we could do in episode and we on. live in that yeah 
You know what I mean? Yeah, We're breathing yeah. in this crappy, toxic air. Yeah. You know? And that's just one thing. I'm just picking one thing off the top of my head. There's lots of other problems too. Yeah, so, yeah. so, um, so that's something we'd, we could do an episode on in the near future as well on like how do we uh, start integrating knowledge we get from our habitat into our cities? Yeah. How do we start making cities um, more basically natural places because not so not so dominated by concrete and cars more dom- more like integrated into their into their environment I suppose um, but uh, something I, w- I want to talk about now before we go on to the interview with, Lu- with Lucy is uh, we talked a bit last time about different alternatives to the agricultural system that we currently have and one thing I learned about recently which I think is really fucking cool is food forestry so it's again it's similar to ethos behind permaculture it's you want to set up a self-sustaining system that replicates itself and maintains itself and the studies have come out recently um so it's a sense it's essentially wild food production am i right essentially yeah there's a study came out by uh headed by a woman called dr s yoshi mezumi she was uh i think she's attached to university in the states now but she was at a university in the uk somewhere i can't think of the name exactly um but we'll uh, share this this resource on our facebook page because it's fascinating and it's a study into into the 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 fruit trees and the, the the human accessible foods that grow in the Amazon. Why is there such an abundance of human food in the Amazon? And it's becoming apparent that it's because of the activity of early humans who would have practiced a form of agroforestry, where they essentially they, they through their activity, much like animals do, other animals do when they're. Uh, when they're kind of interacting in an integrated way, in a reciprocal way with their environment, they were um, the. It's because er, the early humans who started living in the forest, um, they would have cultivated and maintained plants that were beneficial to them. But they did it in a way that integrated those things into the forest, so it was part of the forest ecosystem. It was a reciprocal relationship, in other words, giving it a level of permanency, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And longevity, because it's still there now, thousands upon thousands of years later. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you look at where. F- our our current method of farming started it's a desert now yeah the yeah. way they did it sustains a much smaller population encourages a smaller population but it it sustains do you yeah. know it's still there Keeps going, yeah. um like our current industrial system is that's a parasitic relationship we yeah. take and we take and we take and we give nothing back what yeah. the early the early amazonians did i don't know if you call them amazonians the early indigenous people who lived in the amazon yeah they created a reciprocal relationship with with their surrounding that sustained them and they sustained their surroundings as well. And this is something I heard discussed recently is there's the kind of ethos in, in the environmental movement of leave no trace. Like, as a human, you want to leave no mark on your environment. And that yeah. comes from a good place, that comes from wanting to protect, but that's part of the big the big separation as well, that we, oh, we have to be hands off, we have to leave no trace, whereas they left a trace and it was be- a beautiful, essential trace. Do you know? Yeah, it was a positive. Yeah. So by the way, one side point because it is important to mention the Brazilian Amazon and the tribes contained therein, and even the ones who have never seen outside contact, have never been under a bigger threat than they are now yeah. by the right wing. Essentially, he's a fascist, as far as I'm concerned, even though he wouldn't call himself that. Bolsonaro. So yeah, he's yeah. taken away any of the existing kind of rights in in law that existed to protect those peoples have been completely done away with. And as much as the Amazon has been destroyed in Brazil before, it's, it's going to be decimated now. So yeah, this yeah. is all under extreme threat at the moment of that absolute bastard. Yeah, yeah. Bolsonaro, he's a real dangerous man. Similar to Trump in America, only I think he's a bit worse because he seems to actually be smart. He's actually smarter than, yes. Yeah. He is smarter um, than, he's not stupid, but he has all of the 
all of the other horrible tendencies and talking about how great Trump was. He's basically Brazilian Trump, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Doing the same things, rolling back environmental protections, rolling back protections of indigenous people, doing things that are, you know, making business people happy and making certain conservative people happy, but will ultimately... He's a white nationalist. That's what yeah. he is, you know? It's going to come back and bite everybody in the arse, ultimately. Um, so, yeah, that's important to remember. That is dangerous. Um, so I don't know what we how we do deal with that as an international community, I guess, whatever way. I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of more of a domestic thing, really, in Brazil, but it's just mm. something I had to mention while we were talking about yeah, the yeah. Amazon and the, and the indigenous people, you know, which is something yeah. that I couldn't let slip, you know? So yeah, it's just some information. It's, impo- it's important to be wary, I think, of people who put business interests first. Yeah, you know, business is important. Business having an economy that's vibrant is yeah. important, but it can't be the primary thing. And but and beyond that, he's he's racist. Yeah, that's also what's happening. It's not just oh, it's to facilitate business. He doesn't like them because they're indigenous people. Yeah, he's a, but he's a white Brazilian, and he's basically a white nationalist. That's also part of the story, and also yeah, yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. business angle and things. Yeah. I'm not you know. Absolutely. But the, the reason I wanted to bring it back to that was kind of to bring it back to what goes on here. Because the the way people like Trump and Bolsonaro get into power is because they they do the right things for the business class. They're from the business class themselves. They're very wealthy. Do you know what I mean? Trump inherited absolutely millions from his father, and also Nando. coming on the back of crises that have been fostered for a long time. They come mm. saying that they have solutions. Never a big strong right right wing strong man. Maybe dictator is not the right word, but but admiring of dictatorships in the past. Because yeah, yeah. it's literally saying those words, saying that like they, these were good, the types of dictatorships that existed in countries like that were all good things. Yeah. This is how they come to power. People are frustrated, they're fed up, and long comes someone who says, I have solutions to all these problems, and they yeah, go, and people right. get behind them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, actually, at this point, maybe we... This, we, we, we're recording this all in one go so it feels like one big episode to us but actually this is a new episode so we should point out that uh, Glue Shocked are now very generously sponsoring our podcast uh, they're paying for our podcast hosting so we can have multiple episodes online instead of just three um, but we need to point out that although they are supporting us they are not necessarily standing behind every word that comes out of our mouths and they don't get to hear what we say before it comes out so, yeah, so you know this comes as a surprise to them as much as to all you. Um, <laughs> when when we inevitably say something very stupid, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not their fault. Don't go crying to them. Cry yeah, to us. We're not experts in any of the stuff we talk about. We're just uh, no, we're not professionals. You know, we're yeah. we're like I I I work in 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 computers and Tommy works in music related t- stuff. You know, so yeah. you know we're you were we're coming at this as concerned citizens, shall we say? Exactly. Yeah, with and, a strong um, interest in it, of course, obviously. Yeah, and that's why the last episode was so ranty because I think this is a particular topic that we're both kind of a bit more passionate about than others maybe or just a bit more interested in a bit more actively interested in the food we have things to say which is you know I think it produced good results at least I hope so we'll listen back to it all later and we'll know soon enough yeah yeah so um, the reason I want to bring up the food forestry thing is because I think that looks like that can be part of our solutions to the to the crisis in agriculture we're facing at the moment and how to move forward because there's different uh, different approaches now are becoming talked about in the mainstream like I read an article in the Daily Mail of all fucking places right about this uh Okay, now, wealthy farmers over in England, the Nepa State, a woman called Isabella Tree runs this farm. She wrote a book no called way. Wilding. No Tree. Yeah. Her name's Isabella Tree. <laughs> that gas, isn't it? But uh, they, had this big, they had this big massive cattle farm, but they were struggling to make their living off. And it was 17 acres or something, so they've, they're, they're from money, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but they, they weren't making ends meet in their, in, in their world anyway, off the trying to keep their herds in using traditional kind of or traditional industrial methods of cow farming so what they did was they uh, cut down their herd number massively allowed the land to go wild so instead of keeping a field where they had to constantly input they allowed the land to go to seed native trees started growing again 
uh, you know, thickets, brush, just like wilderness, basically. Their neighbours thought they were going mental. Um, but what they're doing now is they keep a smaller number of cattle on in that sort of rewilded land as part of an ecosystem. And they said what's happened is, so they still make a living off selling cow meat, right? Um, but way less. I'm not necessarily supporting this full what on, they were trying to achieve, but, just but what they're uh, what what they've done by doing this is they've created a natural habitat yeah. that they 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 can use and that they can feed back into. Because what's happened is, so they make their living from it, but also deer have started coming back to the land and living on the land, and ins- insects and birds that they haven't yeah. seen for years have come back to the land. And there's more plants and animals on it, and it's vibrant, and they're making a it's living. It's become diverse again, essentially. Yeah, and. Uh, as well as that kind of thing. So that, that'd be an example, I suppose, of creating a self-sustaining system. It wouldn't be permaculture. It wouldn't be agroforestry, food forestry, but it's... Well, I'd argue it's kind of accidental permaculture in a sense. It'd be part know? of it, yeah, yeah. Even if that wasn't necessarily what they were directly going for, you know? Yeah. Um, and as well as that, I heard about this other fella, I'll probably pronounce his name wrong, name wrong. he's an Indian guy, Shuvendu Sharma. He's an entrepreneur and he helps people grow forests and he can, he can create, in 10 years, he can create a fully mature... Um, native forest and the way they do that is um, well they have particular planting methods but basically what they do is they do a lot of research depending on what area they're in they've done it all over the world they do research and to find out what plants would have grown there before human interference and then they find out what conditions are best for those plants to grow and then they plant accordingly Yeah, and they say within like yeah within 10 years they can have a vibrant forest in a very small area that's yeah. the key thing. They've figured out a way to make propagate it in a small space. Yeah. So I think this this kind of thing could be key to integrating, to reintegrating ourselves into our habitat, but also like making cities more integrated into the bioregion that they're in, you know. It could be part of a future evolution of what a city actually is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like I said, we're going through scary times at the moment with all the things that we've 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 come to realise about our way of life. But there's so much knowledge. But there's power in that realization. There is, there isn't is there? yeah. There's danger and there's power. We can go one of two ways, you know. Yeah. We can either keep going the Bolsonaro, Trump, and Finnegale way, which is the business as usual model, where we just keep producing and keep growing the economy, but not to, not like we're not making the economy stronger. We're just growing it, but we're still on a very weak base. Yeah, our legs are like jelly, while our arms are like. With massive biceps and skinny little legs, we can't hold up our own weight. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, the, the, there's there's so the, like all the stuff we've talked about in this little intro and in the last episode is it's only that's only a small amount of the different alternatives there are that people are working towards. We're really only throwing up examples, really that yeah, yeah. come across. You know, um, but it's all what it all comes back to. I think is that we need to start. Yeah, we need to start seeing ourselves as for what we are. We need to realize that we're part of nature, part of the world. Yeah, and that's kind of what. That was kind of my biggest takeaway from this conversation with Lucy as well. Uh, so we play that for you now. Um, this is uh, Lucy O'Hagan from Wild Way. Yeah, as we said in your introduction, there you're uh, you're an ethnobotanist and you're trained in bushcraft instruction. Yeah. And uh, you're a forest school instructor as well. So just I guess for as a way of introduction, as a way of introducing yourself as well, could you also talk about what those concepts actually are? So yeah, I guess maybe start talking about how how did you get into into ethnobotany mm-hmm. and what what is ethnobotany? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great question. Yeah. Um, yeah um, 
I need to go back a bit for that then. Um, So I suppose, um, yeah, I did my forest school training, first of all, which was kind of what started everything off. Mm. Um, I did that, gosh, maybe four years ago. And before that, I was really interested in education and environmental education. And um, yeah, just sort of came to the realisation that while I wanted there to be um, some kind of change in the way that people and children related to the environment, that going into schools and talking to kids about global warming or recycling wasn't actually creating any kind of paradigm shift. So um, so you, st- you started off going in and educating her and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was going into classes, I was teaching what I called eco-art, so like using rubbish to make art with okay. kids and trying to get them to think about it a little bit differently. And then bit by bit, I was going out into the garden and working with kids out in the garden and planting seeds and growing food and that already I could see was just like creating such a deeper connection for them from where their food came from like Mm. just learning about the animals or the insects that might be there um and could just see like this love that was awakened in them yeah yeah. um so I heard about forest schools first of all through this book by a guy called Richard Louvre called Last Child in the Woods and that was just a complete game shifter for me you know when you you read a book and it just blows your mind just changes everything so um yeah I heard about forest schools um trained to become a forest school practitioner and uh yeah that was it really yeah so what's a what's a forest school exactly what's involved yeah so forest school is an ethos of learning so it's kind of governed by seven principles around um bringing people into a natural setting um and a certified forest school practitioner working with whoever the learners are over a long period of time um so generally like we'll do programs between six and ten weeks and it's that kind of ongoing regular contact with learners that helps them to build a relationship with themselves with each other and with the environment that they're working in so we're trying to yeah promote creative uh, resilient learners who have a really deep love for nature and yeah. want to protect it so um yeah so i got into that and started working in a woodland in the phoenix park and uh yeah slowly realized that while i absolutely loved this ethos of learning like actually as a practitioner i needed to be a lot more reflective on my own skills and my own abilities and um started to reskill myself right. which is where the bushcraft came in okay yeah. and uh the ethnobotany as well so what's uh i mean i think i can imagine what it means but what, could you want to describe what bushcraft means could that be? bushcraft um phew, i don't know what it means actually i think there is um people talk about where it came from but um essentially it's going into the woods and learning how to survive there uh with what is there so okay, yeah. the, like bushcraft can encompass all sorts of things like natural history or woodcraft um foraging sourcing and making water safe to drink building shelters um so a lot around like learning what your body needs and what yeah. your needs are so i trained to be a bushcraft instructor that was over 10 months and i went into the woods over in sussex and slept out in the woods for one week a month and then became a bushcraft instructor. For one week a month. One How long were you doing that for? 
for 10 months. Jesus, okay. Yeah, yeah, it was good crack. And that's how you learn to be a bushcraft instructor. That's how you become a bushcraft instructor, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an odd thing, like, to have an accreditation in, but it was an amazing experience. But I, I quickly realised after I finished it that it was not what I really wanted to do, you know. Um, there's just, a, there's a strong culture around bushcraft that's you know, can be quite military and can be like very male dominated and okay. um, very kind of looking at the woods from a resource perspective rather right, than yeah. a connection and belonging perspective. Yeah. Um, I guess it was just coming to this realisation that the skills weren't enough on their own, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I... Um, then did a class with a woman called Lynx Vilden two years ago in March um, over in Galway and she's an ancestral skills teacher and that kind of just made me realise actually that I'm learning all these skills but they don't mean anything if I don't have a community of people around me mm. and that we're kind of trying to yeah create a connection with nature and recognise ourselves as a part of nature Um that um, yeah, there's no point in me knowing how to go and survive in the woods by myself because we would have never done that, and I really hope that I never have to do that either. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. so it's learning those skills of community as well. Yeah, so yeah. conflict resolution and sharing and like yeah, all of those skills that are so important to living in yeah, a community, yeah. as we well know. Deadly, yeah, because that that's actually the the initially why I thought it'd be cool to bring on this was. Because it like the the episode is about food sovereignty and about the the, the idea of sovereignty is that we're it's a, it means kind of self reliance to mm. a degree, mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of one why not why I wanted to connect you into it because we're talking about using what's here to 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 survive and not to survive but to to like to make our lives using what's what's around us and what's like most easily accessible because mm-hmm. in theory that's the most sustainable way to do things you use mm-hmm. what's around you, but um. The more I, I read into it and thought about it, I, I, like I hadn't really before reading this stuff thought about how important it is philosophically in terms of um, kind of going against the grain of our current society, which is very mm. individual, individually focused. I mean, mm. that's the that's where liberalism and neoliberalism takes mm-hmm. us is that it's it's, it's a, an ideology based on mm-hmm. the autonomy of the individual rather than the sovereignty of the group, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so what you're saying there kind of kind of brought that up again. I just I'd like to read the so Wild Awake is the the company I suppose that you set up to to yeah. facilitate the the forest school that you do in the Phoenix mm-hmm. Park and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So I'll just read the um, introduction off the website. Uh, Wild Awake Education aims to rekindle environmental and cultural resilience through the relearning of ancestral and traditional skills in nature. It is grown from the belief that we need to preserve wildness in ourselves our landscapes and our culture. Um, see, I think all that all that makes a lot of sense <laughs> um, because I think something that we've lost is the strength that comes from having a, a consistent and strong community around you. Mm. Um, that's like there's, there's, I mean, you can just see it in your day to day life anyway. You can see it if you go out into the streets, you can see it in your workplace, but there's, there's plenty of studies coming out now that through various different measurements, loneliness is on the rise. You know what mm. I mean? They're just like people are responding to surveys saying that they don't have, they don't have people that they consider close friends. They don't have people mm. that they can turn to. And 
I think stuff like this is really important for showing people the connection between the ways we have of sustaining our lifestyles and the kind of how widespread loneliness is at the moment. Mm. Um, yeah. I think just like picking up on one thing that you said there, um, I read this really amazing book recently by this woman called uh, Tokopa Turner and she talks about like um, belonging. Um, mm. Yeah, the book is called Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home. Um, and she describes belonging as maybe it's a set of skills or competencies that we've lost along the way. Um, and so I see the skills that I'm teaching as kind of vehicles for belonging, you that know, really like yeah. that's how I've come to think of them. That like if we're, you know, out in the woods and we are weaving a basket or we're following a set of animal tracks or creating fire by friction, it's like you recognize then that you are a part of something, you know, like that you do belong on this earth. And mm. then by practicing that in a community with others, like, yeah, I mean, people that come on my courses, like quite often have a general idea of the approach that I take. But there are some people who are really surprised by it and caught off guard, you know, right. like they think that they've just come out to learn about like how to light a fire, you know. Yeah, yeah. But for me, there are much deeper questions that underlie that, you know, and that can be drawn out of like when we learn how to light a fire, like what does that evoke for us, you know, like mm. what are what is our inner fire like what are our passions like what is um yeah what is driving us in that, this world um and uh yeah i just think that that's so important for people to be witnessed in as well like that there's a group of people who are seeing you um in this kind of transition you know mm. um yeah yeah, yeah, that's a, it's an, an important part of survival and resilience that I think often gets forgotten about, which is the need for social mm, connection, or for just connection with other people. Yeah. And that's like you kind of mentioned that earlier, that the sort of the culture and the, the sort of conversations that happen around survival skills mm -hmm. and resilience or like you watch those like TV shows about doomsday preppers where they're building bunkers for themselves, you know, yeah, right. but it's always about the, the sort of John Rambo character yeah. of like me against the world and I'm yeah. going to. Yeah, yeah get my tin, tins of beans and my shotgun and get ready for the zombie apocalypse kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, like one thing that Lynx Fielden um, would say is that, um, you know, she recognised this, like this common feeling among people of like, you know, what happens when you're out in the woods and you need to survive? Like, how do you get back to civilization when actually, you know, we can see this, the damage that civilization has caused and is causing to people. So mm. why do we want to get back to it? You know, like, why can't we learn to live with nature? Yeah. Um, and like, um, yeah, learn the skills that are a part of that yeah, yeah. as a community. Yeah, and start integrating that into into civilization, I suppose, into our city societies and yeah, start making yeah. them resilient. As yeah, well. yeah. Um, one thing I talk about is kind of like looking to the past for solutions for the future, you know, that mm. we've lived this way for such a long time, like so much longer than we have been farming or since the Industrial Revolution. And it's not about like just going to the past and living there, you know, mm. there's so much a place for all the technology that we have too, but in a way that's like we recognise what it is that we need to protect, you know, that we're mm. not just protecting spaces of the earth you know like we're not just creating a national park and saying well that's the part that we protect it's yeah, that yeah, we yeah. protect every single place that we are yeah. because this is our home and 
yeah, yeah. protecting us. Yeah, that's well. That's I think that's in essence the kind of the 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 shift in our consciousness that's needed, mm. the shift in our philosophy. I don't like using the word philosophy because it kind of suggests not doing stuff. It suggests just sitting around and thinking. But yeah, in terms of our worldview, which is us us being somehow separate from the rest of the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't really I don't want to say it doesn't matter but in a way it doesn't matter how much how many climate change mitigation plans we put in place or how many policies the government changes if, if that fundamental worldview doesn't change that yeah. we're this you know special creature separate from the rest mm-hmm. of the, the, the huge net yeah. of life on the planet yeah yeah um, yeah I think that's a really um kind of core fun um, core element of the forest school movement is just that like cultivating this love and curiosity for the natural world that children innately have really that we all innately have yeah. but um yeah that um we're really like encouraging that kind of earth stewardship like that caretaking of the land mm-hmm. and like fostering that love that then I mean, this quote has come up so often. I think it was David Attenborough said it, like around we don't protect what we don't know mm-hmm. um, un- until we have like that direct experience and that direct kind of experience that being held by the earth. You're not going to care about it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That stuff isn't isn't taught to you no. uh, the way it would have been for years from a young age. Yeah. Um, that's it. I wanna, I'd like to talk more about ancestral skills because mm-hmm. uh, what you were saying there reminded me again. Um, that's a phrase that c- like came up when I was reading your site a lot. Um, and what you're saying there about yeah, we don't want to go back to the past. That's it's not even possible. So at some point, <laughs> like but um, the, it's just the point is to to learn that some things were gotten right in the past and that we shouldn't be so arrogant to think that everything we've done since then is a progression. So mm-hmm. it's actually going backwards. So we can go back and learn from the past, but. I, the word ancestral skills kind of suggests something from really long ago, but it's not even, mm. it doesn't, it, it, it's for me what it brought up was thinking about my, my great grandmother. She only mm. died a few years ago. She's 102. And she, uh, like when I was a kid, she would have brought me out the back and she had vegetables growing in her backyard. And you know what I mean? She'd bring me out and show me all the insects under the rocks and stuff Amazing. like that. Yeah. And she would have had loads of knowledge around uh, what pulses to make for certain elements. And mm. she knew what herbs were good for certain things. You mm. know what I mean? And that's, like that's a person who grew up in the 20th century do you know what I mean yeah, so yeah. they're the kind of ancestral skills we're, we're talking about that have been yeah. kind of lost then for, between even my grandmother's generation my mother's generation and my generation mm. it was those things kind of get tied in with I suppose poverty and backwards mm-hmm. the kind of backwards culture mm-hmm. when really they're the things that make us make us strongest so I don't know if you, do you want to talk about kind of what what the idea of ancestral skills means to you and what's yeah. the, how they can be applied to our lives today yeah I'd love to um yeah so it was a bit of a journey for me to arrive at just like describing what I do as ancestral skills and sort of starting with bushcraft and Mm. really not feeling much belonging with that culture um and um then coming across this movement movement of primitive skills so primitive skills is like you know using only natural resources um but uh yeah just feeling a really strong aversion to using the word primitive um i have an anthropology background and just knowing what that word means to indigenous peoples and how it's been used um so uh, what what would that be then well i suppose like primitive was always used as negative connotation towards like 
lesser peoples, you know, yeah, yeah. people who were who are indigenous, um, primitive would have been used as an insult. Um, okay. And certainly um, there's a big movement in the States in the primitive skills scene to kind of make this more aware to people. Mm. Um, uh, so, yeah, when I came across the description of these skills as ancestral skills, it was something that really sat a lot better with me. Um, and, you know, like recognising that, yes, they are the skills of our ancestors, whether our close ancestors or our distant ones, but also the skills of lots of indigenous people around mm-hmm. the world as well. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's really important that we're looking to the skills of our place as well. So yeah, that, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, very um strong feelings about cultural appropriation in this work and and really not wanting to perpetuate that so when we live in a land that is so rich with all of this knowledge and practices that you know if we're going to connect to our land and our place on this earth we can look to our ancestors that were here Mm. and like we have ancestors that kind of share this um the same skills you know like we all need shelter and clothing and food so um yeah um but then also in ireland as you say like about your your grandmother like Mm. you know certain plants that are good for certain ailments and those plants have a name that's very particular to that place as well Mm. um and the names in irish like they vary so much throughout this land as well which shows how commonly they were used um i can't remember the name for for nettle in ulster it translates as um like field cabbage you know field cabbage yeah 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 it's just like why would you not use nettle you know like it's so abundant and it's so nutritious and like you know if you've got good hands they're easy to harvest um so um yeah i guess yeah for me ancestral skills is um really what's uh yeah where i feel like the most connection comes from yeah, in yeah. really traveling to the source of where things come from so actually since you since you brought up nettles there i yeah. guess just for anyone who's listening and is curious um if someone thought right i want to go foraging now I'm going to stop listening to this podcast and go out and start foraging straight away. Yeah. What would be kind of common enough and easy to identify things that people could keep an eye out for that have uh, either medicinal or nutritional uses, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose what I would recommend to people is to go and get a good foraging book if they can um, mm. or go out with someone who knows and that might be a foraging instructor or it might be their granny. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, then in season now, we have all these amazing spring greens popping up, you know, so after a long winter hibernation our body needs all these really fresh things to get our blood moving so yeah the green nettles are coming up um i'm pretty sure everyone can identify them (laughs) um but like not everybody realizes just how incredible they are you know and uh all the minerals and nutrients that they give us um and all the different ways that they can be used whether it's for tea or you know throwing them into a soup or a stew or drying them and powdering them or um gosh i don't know like deep frying them to make nettle crisps is really good that's a favorite at the forest school (laughs) yeah yeah i've got kids loving nettle crisps um (laughs) 
And uh, yeah, so that's a really great one. Um, we've also got cleavers. Um, so there's lots of different names for cleavers. Sticky willy, sticky grass, oh, yeah. goose grass, robin run the hedge. Um, yeah, usually if a plant has loads of different names, it's a really good indicator that it was used a lot. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And that's like an amazing uh, immune boosting plant that's like cleaner for our lymphatic system so really the kind of thing that your body needs at this time of year and that's quite often what we see with foraging for wild plants for food or medicine Mm. um that nature is providing us with exactly what our body needs at a certain time of year so we're getting all these like kind of spicy fresh greens that are boosting our immune system and getting us moving again and then heading into you know all the different seasons autumn we've got like our protein rich nuts and like lots of like fruits high in antioxidants which are like gearing you up for any flus or viruses that mm. might come you your way um so yeah it's like again like referring back to what we were saying of actually being a part of nature yeah like we are nature yeah that's, um, what, that's what jumped into my head there was like when, when you start learning about this stuff you realize just how much literally you have been shaped by your environment or yeah. like that like our species we get what we need from our environment because we were shaped by the environment. Like yeah. we, we can only access that stuff because that's what grew us. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's like, it's, it's, I suppose it's obvious when you think about it, but it's, it's, it's no, it's mind blowing when you haven't thought about it. Do you Completely. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's a really important thing to learn, I think. Yeah. 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 And if we think about our ancestors and how they would have moved around the landscape as well, you know, and, like spending so much time by the coast because you have all these amazing like iodine rich seaweeds that are just so great for your body and for um like they're coming into season around now as well again Mm. what our body needs after a long hibernation in winter and all the seafood and yeah it's just it's really exciting um, to think about something that just occurred to me there is you, you, you can encounter a lot of skepticism i suppose when you start talking about natural remedies because I'm doing air quotes by the way because um, it's it, it, it kind of gets associated with quackery a lot of the time and that's not always for no reason yeah do you know what I mean but what how do we go about kind of because there's, there's plenty of scientific backing for many of the mm-hmm. the uses of many herbs and natural foods and stuff like that and mm-hmm. wild plants what, 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 how, how, what way do we kind of like counteract that sort of mm unwillingness to engage with it i think people kind of just think of it as dirty or just that it doesn't work or whatever but like yeah you know, yeah i don't yeah. know what you do about that uh, yeah it's a really interesting one um i guess like what popped into my head there was you know all these scientists proving that such and such a plant is actually good for a cold and yeah, yeah. indigenous people around the world are going yeah we I mean we told you so <laughs> yeah, like, yeah thanks for pointing that out like guy in a suit um so yeah i mean it's like you know you can read all these really old books and actually there's this amazing woman um what's her name oh it's totally gone out of my head but she lives up in donegal um in the gale talk and she's a native irish speaker and a herbalist and she learned all of her herbal knowledge from her mother who learned it from her grandmother so it's like this really it was such a rare encounter with a woman like this you know Mm. to yeah for someone to have learned that way um and you know she was talking about um 
chewing on a potato for a sore throat and like wrapping a raw hair skin around your knee for like um sore joints and it's like you know this these are things that people practiced and not saying that everybody should go out and wrap a hair skin around their (laughs) knee but it's like it's such a rich thing to have you know like to know that that was practiced and that um yeah that it's part of our cultural heritage as well um so yeah i don't i don't really know the answer to your question but a lot of those like we say folk remedies um like that was the people's medicine yeah. you know and and that is what worked for them and that is still what works yeah yeah that's important to note as well that a lot of sort of pharmaceutical solutions to problems that have their basis in herbal in uh, like traditional solutions the, yeah. the, the one that jumps to my head is a uh, well, what's it called valium is yeah. is an extract of valerian which mm-hmm. is used for essentially the same purpose mm-hmm. um so a lot of a lot of uh, especially kind of medications for mental health and mental illness are are often derived from they're like a concentrated substance from a plant that was used for the same purpose for yeah, yeah, for, for the throughout our evolution as a species like yeah if we think of st john's wort and that's actually illegal to yeah, yeah. that, that a... blew my mind actually I went into a health shop a while ago looking for that and your one said no we can't sell that because it actually works yeah <laughs> and I was like so what are you telling me about all this other stuff you yeah yeah <laughs> you know? absolutely but yeah, uh, yeah it was, I couldn't believe when they, when they banned that like it grows yeah along the canal bank it grows in the ditch do you know yeah, what I mean yeah, like yeah. it's kind of mad it grows mad, a lot on acidic soil so we yeah. see it quite a lot here before we kind of finish up um, another thing that came up a lot when I was reading reading over the the blog and stuff on your website was mm-hmm. uh it kept coming back to community and the importance of community and and one idea that stuck out to me was that, that skills have little meaning in isolation i don't know if that's a direct quote from paraphrasing you know but um <laughs> could you speak about that a bit um because again as, as as you mentioned earlier th- th- this isn't just about kind of knowing about plants mm-hmm. and knowing about mm-hmm. how to get by in your habitat it's also about like well, it is about that, but an essential part of that is mm-hmm. the interactions you have with people while you're doing it. So yeah. I don't know if you want to finish yeah. up by talking about that. And I know you mentioned to me earlier that you're doing a, a foraging walk with Cross Care mm-hmm. um, in March sometime, isn't it? So maybe yeah. you want to talk yeah. about that a bit as well. Yeah. OK, so I think I'd like to talk about it like in context of a workshop that I did at the weekend, which was part of the Rewild in the City series. Um, and it was on wildlife tracking. And um, as part of that workshop, you know, we do a lot of um, awareness activities and um, activities to kind of draw our mind to inner tracking as well. So like what's happening throughout the workshop with our emotions and in our body. Um, But then we go out, you know, as a group and look for tracks um, or look for signs of animals Mm. um, in the park, of which there are many. And... um, a big part of that workshop and a, a huge part of tracking is what we, we call it like holding the question. So like so much in our culture, we want to name something straight away. I mean, this happens at the foraging walks and stuff as well. Like people mm. want to know a name, what it is good for, and they've got their knowledge and that's it. They can go home, money well spent. <laughs> um, 
but uh or maybe not I don't know (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah like holding the question is about like sitting with that like discomfort of not knowing the answer to something and not being okay Hmm. um so we might come across a track and you know it's very much around like saying what you can see um so looking at you know where it is um how many toes it has does it have claws what does the palm pad look like what direction is it going in why might it be going in this direction what is pushing or pulling that animal across the landscape like where did this animal come from um and just to try and draw out as much information from people to like re-spark that curiosity you know and it is like that childlike curiosity I have no problem doing this with kids. Like kids will sit and ask questions about a fox track for ages without like really, you know, they might find out that it's a fox, but then they're wondering, where is the fox now? Like, does the fox have a family? Like, what does the fox eat? What eats what? You know, like it's this never ending list of questions. And we're kind of losing that a little bit at the time when we need it most, you know, like Mm. we really need to start looking for solutions now for the mess that we're in. Um, And I really want to try and cultivate that in those workshops for people that they are okay with not knowing the answers to things because they can keep asking questions. Um, so yeah, that's part of the rewild in the city, which you've mentioned on this podcast before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's usually a Sunday in the month. I'm really bad with continuity of dates, <laughs> but it's the Sunday in the month. Um, and it's all exploring ancestral skills and it's donation based. Um, like precisely to try and get these skills out there to as many people as possible which um yeah leads me on to the cross care workshops so i think what's like always really a struggle for me is um you know my audience quite often is the same and i'm so grateful to the people that come to my workshops Mm. and like allow me to keep doing what i'm doing because i love it um but you know if we're really going to influence any kind of major shift in our culture like i feel like i'm leaving out a huge like demographic of people Mm. and so i'm just trying to find ways to reach a wider diversity um and uh yeah so i'm doing uh foraging walks for cross care so for the people who use their food banks um in the hope that, you know, people aren't going to be going out and foraging every day. Obviously, like time poverty is a really real thing. So you can't, you know, go and spend two hours foraging for your family meal, but maybe walking down the street or if you're in the park and you see a nettle or a dandelion or something else that we might have pointed out and you know now that actually that food is like, 10 20 50 times more nutrient dense than what you're going to buy in the supermarket and it's free and it's really great for your mental and physical health just to be out in nature especially now when all the birds are singing and it's really really beautiful that you might have just that bit of time to do that um but yeah i mean social barriers are very real and there's a reason why um People are kept in this poverty trap, you know. Well, there's not a reason, but people are kept. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I just recognise that, like, 
there is a huge privilege underlying a lot of these skills like in access to the education to learn them and the time to learn them and the money to learn them and access to natural spaces and I'm mm. really passionate and very open to suggestions on how to change that. Yeah, sound, sound, good stuff. Um, and if so, if there were any other like community groups or anyone who wanted to get in touch and ask about that kind of thing, yeah. um, either to make suggestions or to ask about how they, they can organise mm-hmm. uh, organise outings for their group or whatever, what would be yeah. the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so through email. So it's lucy at wildawake.ie or if you go onto the website wildawake.ie, there's Sound a little you. contact me part of that. Cool, yeah. So. Um, I'd say we're, we're we nearly we nearly time for us to finish up, um, but I just I'd like to endorse the rewilding the city thing. I went and did one last summer I think on starting a fire from scratch. Yeah, and it was great crack. I was no good at it. <laughs> I didn't successfully cause a flame anywhere, but uh, it was a very enjoyable way to spend an afternoon. Yeah, well, um, and I, I I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it is mainly just about spending time in nature and what that does for your head not that it's mainly about that but that's that's a huge part of it, it is, and yeah. I definitely I definitely come away from it feeling the benefit of it so something I'd recommend is going to that and if you can bring a friend of yours who isn't into quote unquote that sort of thing mm-hmm. and just just see what happens because yeah, those are the best ones yeah, that's yeah. who I have to convince <laughs> yeah so the next one is um, the set, well, 10th of March I Ten believe March. if that's a Sunday and the theme is fish skin tanning so it's okay. um, yeah, taking fish skins from uh, local fishmongers that would be thrown out otherwise and tanning them and turning them into usable material. Okay. And if you're into wild foods and medicines, that's April 7th. So that'll be the next one. Deadly. Right, we'll leave it at that. So. Thanks, William. Thanks. Thanks, Tommy. Right, so that was Lucy O'Hagan. And um, there was one thing I just wanted to dwell on a bit more that I, I, I meant to ask Lucy about, but I forgot to... And that was that, just, well, not to ask her about, but just to talk to her about the concept of wildness, like getting back in touch with wildness. You know, that might evoke an image of you, you know, wrapping it, taking all your clothes off, wrapping a T-shirt around your waist and grabbing a stick and running through the streets, hunting the local cats or something. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means what I what I kind of thought of was what are, what are the benefits of wildness, right? So there's loads of benefits to being domesticated reliability do you know what I mean you rely on food or something um, to less and less well, degree well can, can we actually so that might be a bit of an illusion really yeah 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 no true but um, one of the benefits of wildness is being able to respond quickly to a situation do you know what I mean Probably what kind of situation a, you mean just generally you know fight or flight right quick response might not necessarily be a good thing because something else we would advocate for is like taking your time and figuring out the right way to do things but we're we're running out of time so i think like just on a psychological level getting back in touch with our our nature and seeing ourselves as part of nature yeah and really wild and i suppose it so there's loads of practical reasons that that's going to be part of the solution but like philosophically and psychologically why it's part of the solution is because we need to be able to respond quickly to this crisis and we need to quickly see that we are we're on planet earth like (laughs) we're on this big floating ball and there isn't going to be another there isn't going to be a plan B for that exactly there's no planet B as the slogan goes you know Um, so fuck it a decent quantity of cop on needed I think but um, yeah we're getting there there's lots lots there so that's kind of 
And again, to bring up why why we're doing this podcast at all in the first place, as as you said in the last episode, it's not to necessarily bring you news, but yeah. it's to bring kind of ideas up and to have conversations. This is kind of a safe place for me and you to have a conversation because we're sitting down deliberately. We're going to deliberately talk about these things. But it's it's the kind of thing that's hard to bring up in daily conversation because it's like it's upsetting and it can feel really disempowering because nobody knows what the fuck to do. And people just don't want to talk about it because of how huge and in, and just impossible a problem it seems. Yeah. But we just need to keep talking about it. Which I don't personally think it is, by the way. No, I can I understand people feeling that way, but I don't I don't actually feel that that is actually true. I don't think these problems are insurmountable. They're big, but I really don't feel that way at all. And I'm not just saying that for the sake of being stupidly optimistic, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, there is plenty of things that can be done. I think we can see, and we can see, we can see a better life for ourselves at the end of this. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent at the end of an episode, but something we'll talk about in the future. Just before I came here, you know, I read uh, Naomi Klein, who's brilliant, and has a book about uh, climate change and what needs to happen coming out soon, or it's already come out actually. Um, it's called um, I forget the exact name, but I will come back to what it is. But her latest book, anyway, she's talking about one of the things that needs to happen to challenge the capitalism logic is we should go back to we should go to a three day week. Of work, mm. so imagine that three days on, four days off, because the re- in very quick TLDR, because the current economic system is not compatible with moving away from climate disaster. Yeah. That's basically the long and short of it. We can come into this in more detail in the future, but yeah. but imagine that. Imagine a life where you have plenty of fresh veg to eat, and you only work three days a week, and you have more time for leisurely activities. And the, the example was like cooking while listening to music that you like. Imagine yeah. a world like that. It's not just. There's a better world out there, you know. The majority of people, certainly in in Dublin anyway, that I know of, it's gone like London is, you know what I mean? It's definitely... People have to work constantly just to have a roof over their heads. So people have no free time. And that's really bad for loads of reasons. But the first thing that came to my head there when you were talking about that stuff was a large part of what we need to to tackle this crisis is creativity. And for people to access creativity, they need to have rest time. You yeah. can't. You can't think. You cre- can't think about these things unless you have time to reflect upon them properly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't use your imagination if you're exhausted all the time. Yeah. So, <clears throat> having a shorter work week and having a less work focused society doesn't mean, I know, conservative people might say, "Oh, people be lazy." By the way, it's to- been it's been shown to be more productive for actual yeah. work purposes. Yeah. For reasons that make sense if you think about it. But again, don't want to go down too much of a rabbit yeah. hole. We'll have time for all that. That's it. You can be more productive, but also then have leisure time to relax and think. Yeah. And, and that's what like and to have a good life yeah you know so all these things are interlinked you know yeah but as we were saying there people don't want to have these conversations because they're difficult but it's also people are too tired and don't have the fucking time to think about these big problems because they're we're all we're all locked into the system together we're so, distracted yeah yeah exactly and so that has to ch- i don't know how we change it but that's something we need to seriously work towards is like uh, ending capitalism is that what we're talking about basically <laughs> is that what we're talking about basically uh, yeah typical fucking lefties huh <laughs> but um, I suppose we wrap it up like that um, and talk to you next month yes we actually next month we were originally going to do an episode on mental health um, but I I feel underprepared for that so I think I don't think we'd make an amazing episode out of it unfortunately it's something we're talking about but maybe we're not best place to talk about that ourselves not know? yeah it, it's so rather come out with something crappy <laughs> yeah probably like we'd be bringing up that kind of stuff like well-being and mental health as we go on anyway because it's always relevant to yeah. all these things but uh yeah so the we, teams are for focusing on certain things but these things yeah. are all interlinked anyhow yeah yeah so for our next episode we'll 
we uh, we don't know what team it's going to be yet but we've uh, we've a list of potential things and as usual if you want to suggest that and please get in touch please do turningearthradio at gmail.com uh, Salon go full Salon <laughs> <laughs>